Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our Friday series with James Jordan walking through the book of Romans, and here he's going to be looking at chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 4, verse 25. This week at Theopolis, we had a piece posted from Ralph Smith on the household code in Colossians, and we also had a contribution from Alistair Roberts in our current Theopolis conversation on the book of James as he responds to Jeff Myers. We also began a new series over on our YouTube channel with Alistair Roberts on the Bible and Bibliology. And you can find links to all of these new pieces of content in the show notes. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the book of Romans. We have seen, as commentator J.D. Dunn says, that Paul's critique of the law is against the law taken over to completely by Israel, the law misunderstood by a misplaced emphasis on boundary-marking ritual. The law become a tool of sin in its too close identification with matters of the flesh. The law sidetracked into a focus for nationalistic zeal. Freed from that too narrowly Jewish perspective, the law still has an important part to play in the obedience of faith. And the last part of Paul's epistle, chapters 12 to 16, can then be seen as Paul's attempt to provide a basic guideline for social living. The law redefined for the people of God in place of the law misunderstood in these Jewish terms. So that's what we are at. And we are now at Romans 3, 21 to 31. Romans 3, verse 21. We've been talking about the depravity of man and how everybody is depraved, both Jew and Gentile. And now we come to this. But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting excluded? By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not one of Gentiles also? obviously the God of Gentiles also, if indeed God is one. And so he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. But do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now that's real dense, isn't it? Dense Pauline writing, hard to follow. Our job is to unpack it to some extent and give you the basic theme of it. Remember that this phrase, the righteousness of God, means God's covenant faithfulness. God sticks by what he said he's going to do. And so he says here in verse 21, apart from the law, God's faithfulness is manifested in Christ, although it's taught in the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament teaches us about God's faithfulness, 
But the faithfulness that's manifested in Jesus Christ is not a faithfulness that is circumscribed by the law as a means of Jewish national identity. Jesus didn't come to save just Jews or to make everybody in the world into a Jew. He came to save the world. Remember what we said this morning, that the Nazarite takes his vow to serve God, and at the end of his vow, he cuts his hair off, puts it on the altar, and goes back to being an ordinary person. Now, that is a microcosm of the history of Israel. God called Israel, gave them a certain task, but once the task is over, they're supposed to stop, go back to being ordinary people. And that's what's supposed to happen here in the New Testament. Why? Because Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Nazarite. When did Jesus take the Nazarite vow? He certainly was not a Nazarite during his ministry because he drank wine with people and he drank wine at the Last Supper. But then he said, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it anew in the kingdom. And on the cross they offered him wine and he wouldn't take it. Jesus takes the Nazarite holy war vow just before going to the cross when he fights the holy war. But then it's over. And uh, Israel is over. Their purpose is fulfilled. Jesus Christ, the true Israelite, has come. So Jesus did not come under the law in the sense that the Jews meant it. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. God's faithfulness is revealed apart from the special laws given at Mount Sinai, the special laws given to Israel's circumcision. And he's going to prove that in Romans 4. Okay? He asserts it here. He starts off. Now, he says the law and the prophets teach about this. They taught that this was going to happen. They taught Israel that all along their mission was temporary. In verse 22, he says that God's faithfulness, the righteousness of God, God's faithfulness, which is through faith in Christ Jesus, is for everybody who believes. It's for everybody who trusts in him. Jew and Greek, Jew, Greek, and Gentile, Jew, Greek, and barbarian, all three groups of people, high priests, priests, Levites, Jews, Doberman, Greeks, the Guardian Empire, and the barbarians. It's for everybody the same way. God's faithfulness is given to anybody through faith. And the reason is there's no distinction because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. You see, in context, this means Jews as well as Gentiles have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They're all in the same boat. They all have the same need. Now, verse 24 says that we are declared just in God's law court as a free gift by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay. Justified means that we were accused and we were going to be put to death and we deserve to die. But when we got to court, the judge said, you can go. And we said, how come we get to go? We were accused. We were guilty. We deserve to die. And the answer is, Jesus has made it possible for us to go free instead of being put to death by God. Now, how did Jesus do that? Well, two things he did. He paid a cost, and the cost was his own blood. The first thing that Paul says is that it is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, in the Messiah Savior, the anointed Savior, Christ Jesus. Redemption. What? is redemption. The fundamental idea in redemption is deliverance from oppression. One aspect of redemption is to buy somebody back who's in slavery. But the more fundamental idea 
is to destroy the oppressor and set the people free. Jesus did not pay a price to anybody in order to redeem us. He didn't pay a price to the Father. He didn't pay a price to Satan. No, that's not the idea in redemption. But at great cost, the cost of his own death, he destroyed the ones who held us in slavery. Now, in the Old Testament history, what is the great act of redemption? Not the Day of Atonement. The Passover. Okay. Passover. What happened at the Passover? Well... At the Passover, the Jews were redeemed out of slavery. And God didn't pay a price to Pharaoh to buy him out. He destroyed Pharaoh, you see. So don't think that redemption means paying a price to buy something all the time. That's one aspect. But the more profound aspect is to destroy the wicked and deliver. Now, the whole outworking of that is complex. And the ten chapters in Exodus are given to the negotiations between God and Pharaoh, which ultimately result in this. We're not going to go into that. What I do want you to remember is this. Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, Tomorrow night at midnight, God is going to go through and kill all the firstborn children of the land, all the firstborn sons. From studying Leviticus and Numbers, we can be confident that that means all the firstborn sons under five years old. doesn't mean everybody. The firstborn sons under five years old are the ones who are exchanged for the Levites later on. So all the little boys are going to be killed if they are the first son. doesn't matter how many daughters there are ahead of them. The first son, if he's under five years old, is going to be killed. Unless people kill a lamb or a kid. Now, I don't mean a human kid. A kid is a baby goat. You have to find a baby male goat or a baby male sheep. Okay, a lamb or a kid and kill it and put the blood... On the door posts, on the posts and across the top, to make a doorway, a bloody doorway that the people are going to come through when they are redeemed. Now, who could do that? Only the Hebrews? No. You see, any Egyptian who listened, and many did, killed a lamb and put that blood on his doorpost. And lots of mixed multitude types did too. Ethiopians and Hittites and Others who were down there in Egypt, they had seen the first nine plagues. By now, they had a pretty good idea of who Yahweh was. And after the plague of darkness, they said, I think I'll go find me a lamb. And I think I'll get saved. So lots and lots of Egyptians and other people joined in. Now, the point of this is, this redemption is for Jew and Gentile alike. By alluding to redemption... Paul says to anyone reading, hey, you know full well that redemption applied to Jew and Gentile alike. They got out in the wilderness and there were the Israelites and there was a mixed multitude. Forty years later, by the time they conquered Canaan, what happened to the mixed multitude? You don't read about any mixed multitude in Joshua. They had blended in and become a new nation. So God is always saving Gentiles. Don't be ridiculous and think he hadn't been. Then he says in verse 25... A second thing, whom God displayed publicly as a cover in his blood through faith. Now, this is hard to translate. In whom God displayed publicly as the covering of the ark. The ark of the covenant was God's throne that was sitting in the Holy of Holies. And that's where God lived 
where his name lived in the tabernacle and the temple. The Ark of the Covenant was a box. Inside that box were the Ten Commandments. The box had a lid, which is called the lid or cover. Sometimes it's called mercy seat, but that's really not the name of it. The name of it is the lid. And this lid was a slab of gold, fairly thick, that covered it, and worked into it were two cherubim, and God dwelled on top of them. And it says here that Jesus was set forth as this covering. Now, what was the function of this covering? Your Bible may say propitiation, it may say expiation, but the literal statement here is that it is this ark cover, this slab of gold that Jesus is set out as. What is it? Well, it takes us back to the day, especially it says propitiation, excuse me, a slab, the ark covering through blood. If we were to look into it, we would go back to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16, and also compare Leviticus chapter 4. There we have the laws for sin offerings. The only sacrifice in the sacrificial system that dealt with high-handed self-conscious sins was the Day of Atonement, which took place once a year, six months from Passover. In other words, they were six months apart, and they bracketed the year into two halves. The way the ritual took place... For a sin offering, if you were just an ordinary Joe and you became aware that you had slipped up and committed an inadvertent sin, or if you committed a high-handed sin and you confessed and made restitution, then it's converted into an inadvertent sin, you'd bring your animal, you'd kill it, and the priest would get blood in basins. And he would take some of the blood and he would put it on the top of the altar on the horns and put the rest down at the bottom. And what that would do by putting it at the top first and then at the bottom, it opens a ladder from heaven to earth. And afterwards, because of that ladder open from heaven to earth, God will come and meet with you. And so immediately after putting the blood on the top and the bottom, he puts fire on the altar. He stokes up the fire by putting wood on it and puts the animal on it and sends the animal up to heaven. So God reaches down through the blood and pulls the sacrifice up into his presence. And ascending the sacrifice up into his presence is a symbol of glorification. Killing the animal is judgment, but being put in the fire is to be taken up to God. Now, if you were a priest and you sinned, it was a little bit more complicated. You kill an animal and you take the blood inside the holy place to the altar of incense. And you put some blood on the top of the horns of that And then you bring the blood out and pour it at the base of the outside altar. I don't have a chalkboard, so I can't draw this, and I know some of you don't quite have this in mind, but I'm going to say it so that as you listen to the tapes over and over again, you get it. Well, now the ladder is more elaborate, but we're still moving from the top of this altar back down and then outside to the bottom of the outside altar. The ladder is opened up from God to us, a bigger ladder. But the biggest ladder of all is opened up on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest goes not only into the holy place where the golden altar of incense is, but he pulls the curtain back into the most holy place, and he sprinkles seven times blood on what? That golden slab. And then he brings it out, 
and sprinkles some in front of the curtain and takes it out to the altar. And by doing that, he opens a ladder all the way from the throne of God out to the altar. That's the biggest ladder that's opened up. Then he takes the animal and cuts it up and puts it on the fire and the animal goes all the way up, you see, symbolically, to the throne of God because God is enthroned right above that blood on the mercy seat. And he sprinkles it seven times. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Over the centuries, those sprinklings accumulated in seven bowls. And in the book of Revelation, those bowls are dumped back down on the earth. You ever wonder why there are seven bowls in Revelation? It's because of these sevenfold sprinklings in the law. And I don't know why I mention that, because now you're going to want to know about it. And that's way off the subject. But, of course, if you got my stuff on Revelation, it's for sale over there. You'd have an inside track. You'd know more than others. The blood opens this ladder, the biggest ladder, and that is the propitiation. A propitiation means God is very mad and man is very bad. See, you are very bad, God is very mad. But the sacrifice makes God happy. And so it satisfies his anger. God on his throne, see, the slab is here and that's the throne, and here the cherubim, and God is sitting on the wings of the cherubim. And God looks down and he sees that blood on that slab and he says, Okay, I'll pass by their sins for another year. Now, as I mentioned this morning, it had actually been about 200 years since they had had a real day of atonement. But when Jesus came, his blood was taken up into heaven and God said, I'm going to pass this by forever. Now, what's interesting about this is, the day of the atonement, what happened on the tenth day of the seventh month which was the beginning of the year. The year begins in the seventh month. What happens on the 15th day of the seventh month? The Feast of Tabernacles, or ingathering, which celebrates the mission to the Gentiles. Paul says here that righteousness, which is beyond the law given to Israel, beyond nationalistic Israel, has been manifested, but it was witnessed in the Law and the Prophets. And sure enough, Passover was for everybody. And the Day of Atonement, although it was offered by Israel, it was offered on behalf of the world. All 70 nations. That's why you have these 70 bulls being ascended up to heaven during the Feast of Tabernacles that follows right after the Day of Atonement. It wasn't just for Israel. It was for all nations. So both of these pictures, both the spring and the fall, both the beginning of the year and the end of the year, both Passover redemption and Day of Atonement propitiation of the wrath of God, both of them are for Jew and Gentile. Anybody who read the Old Testament should have known that, says Paul. And he's right, of course. Then he continues in verse 25. These verse breaks are terrible through here. He says, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of faith in Jesus. You see, God was faithful to the covenant when he passed by those earlier sins. That was righteous on his part. He didn't set aside his righteousness to pass over those sins. His righteousness means that he is consistent and faithful to his promise. And his promise was, I will pass by sins until Jesus comes. Yeah, I'll punish you for them, but I will pass by inadvertent sins. If you commit inadvertent sins, if you're led astray by somebody, 
If you didn't know any better, if you slipped and you forgot, if somebody made you mad and you flew off the handle before you thought about it, if you did something in a heat of passion and you remembered it later on, or even if you committed a high-handed sin, but then you went and repented publicly and made restitution, I'll count that as an inadvertent sin. And I'll pass it by and you can bring these sacrifices and we'll take care of it. And that's my promise. And God was faithful and righteous. And all of this patience of God demonstrates his righteousness. If you want to be a righteous person, you've got to be patient with other people when they sin against you. People sin against you. They do terrible things to you. Jesus says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. People violate us. People do terrible things to us. You know what we do? When somebody does something to us that we don't like, one of the other ladies in the church makes some remark about our child, or something like that happens, we put the worst possible interpretation on it. I know that she thought that up. She thought that up for a while. She worked it over in her mind, and she said it on purpose in order to stick a knife into me, and I hate her, or whatever. Okay, when Men don't have this problem. What we do is we put the worst possible interpretation on any slight that comes our way. And do I have a witness? All right. See, Mr. Turry does this. Mr. Turi. And the rest of you are liars. Do I have a witness? All right. Okay, let's hear it here. We want to put the worst possible interpretation on what other people do to us. But God's righteousness means... He's generous in counting the sins we do against him. It's a good thing he is. And he passed them over for a long time, and he passes them over for us. But, Paul says, it's also true that the climax and death of Jesus Christ, the climax of history, shows his righteousness and faithfulness. He's faithful now by dealing with sin once and for all. He's faithful when he passes it by and gives us another chance And he's faithful when he deals with it and finishes it. Because God also promises in the law, if you sin too much and you don't repent, it's curtains. Okay? God is consistent and he saves those who trust in him. This is to demonstrate his righteous faithfulness, whereas A, in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. He was generous and merciful And that's righteous on his part, and it is on your part. And for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time in dealing with sin once and for all and bringing judgment. How? That he might be just, that he might be consistent, and the justifier of the one who trusts in Jesus. That he can pass judgment on us and say we're okay. All right? It's a little bit dense, kids, tonight. Not so many stories tonight. We'll try to get back to some stories later on. Paul is tough stuff. comes at the end of the Bible. We're not supposed to start reading the Bible here. We're supposed to read all this other stuff first. All these good stories, okay? That's what we read first when we're young. Paul shouldn't be studied by anybody except people in their 60s. (laughs) Our problem is we start with this part of the Bible, which is the last part. And that's not where we should be starting. But it's okay for us to study it. I mean, we're doing the best we can. And it's great stuff. Now, what does he go on to say? Well, where is boasting? This is verse 27. Where is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Law of works? No, a law of faith. Now, what he means by that is it's the same law, the Torah, considered one of two ways. 
The Torah considered as works, the Torah considered as a badge of national Israel that makes them better than everybody else. But yeah, you can boast if you think the law is that. I thank God that I am not like other men, like this publican here. I praise you that I'm elect. I praise you that I've been saved, that I have the covenant, that I have the law. Okay? That's Israel. That's what Paul's dealing with. Boasting is not excluded by that attitude. No, but boasting is excluded by a law of faith. Lord, your law shows me that I'm a rotten sinner. And as a Jew, I am worse than other people. We're going to get to that. The Jews are worse than other people, which means Christians are worse than other people. And so there's no boasting. The law considered as an outworking of faith gives you no boasting because you're trusting in God. You have nothing to boast of. Verse 28 says, We maintain a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Salvation is completely separate from being a Jew and having a special national identity and a special national calling. That's what he means. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, because God is one. Now, he's throwing this argument at his Jewish readers, and all they can say is, well, yeah, sure. I mean, we know that God created everybody, and he is the God of the Gentiles. Everybody admits this. And so, therefore, everybody has to be justified the same way. Verse 30, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Now, if somebody wants to be perverse, they can say, well, Paul, you're attacking the law. The law was given to Israel in order to give them a special position with God. Paul says, no, I'm not attacking the law. By faith, we establish the law. We establish the law and we return it to its true purpose. The true meaning of the law is restored. It was not given so people could be proud they had it. Quite the contrary, the law was given so that Israel would sin more and become an object lesson to the nations. Now, you think through the prophets and you'll realize that's true. I will make you an object lesson to the nations. Everybody who sees what I do to you will hiss and say, Oh, look what the Lord did to them. Hope he never does it to us. Why? Because the more we know about God, the more we hate God. When you only know a little bit about God, there's only a little bit to hate. What do you think original sin is? Original sin is hatred for God. And it still hangs around inside of us, even though we're saved. It's called the flesh. It's the residue of our former life. All men hate God. And the more they know about God, the more there is to hate. You know what the wicked do in eternity? In hell? They're constantly finding out more things about God to hate. Hell is progressive. Because God is infinite. And the wicked spend eternity in the presence of God. You can say that to the man on the street. You will spend eternity in God's presence. You may not like it. The book of Revelation says the lake of fire is right in front of the throne of God. Revelation chapter 14. And they have always got something new to learn about God to hate. Whereas we always are finding something new about God to love. It's progressive. Now let's go through chapter 4 real quick. And now we'll get more of a story. What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? Because this is where Paul proves the stuff he's just been asserting. And he proves it by telling us the story of Abraham. Is it Abraham has found something according to the flesh, or Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? I'm not sure. Probably our forefather according to the flesh. The word flesh here simply means the first creation. It doesn't mean something bad. It just means the first creation. New creation is in the Spirit. Okay, what about Abraham? What about his life? What do we learn from it? 
Verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, though not before God. But what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham's covenant faithfulness to God did not come about because he was always faithful. Rather, it came about because he believed God and exercised faith. Now, that is the first thing said about Abraham before he circumcised. Now, Paul starts to talking about two aspects of this verse. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. First, Paul talks about this reckoning business. How do you reckon something? Well, one way to reckon something is as a wage. The one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. Okay? If I work for you and you agree to pay me, then my wage is owed me. Well, Paul doesn't say anything about that because that's absurd. God doesn't owe anybody anything. You'd have to be crazy to believe that you can earn merits with God. Of course, that's what the medieval church fell into. And that's why this is so important at the Protestant Reformation. But that's not the view that the Jews had at this time. Their view was this nationalistic view. So he says, that's not involved. If God reckoned to him righteousness, it wasn't because he earned it. Verse 5, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. In other words, he says to these Jewish readers, look, you can't possibly believe that Abraham earned his way to heaven. Nobody in his right mind can believe that. So you're going to have to say that Abraham received his salvation completely by faith. Then he cites David to make the same point. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. That is, apart from any special privilege or calling. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So grace and salvation have to be free. The reckoning has to be in response to just faith, just accepting a free gift Because it can't be in response to earning. So now Paul turns to the first half. Abraham believed God. As we look at reckoning, reckoning has to be free. So what about belief? Was belief free? Did Abraham do something? Now listen. Verses 9 to 12. Is this blessing upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? Remember, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. Well, how was it reckoned? When he was circumcised or when he was uncircumcised? Well, it was not when he was circumcised, but while he was still uncircumcised that he received the sign of circumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision 29 years later, a seal of the righteousness of the faith that he had while he was uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are the circumcision, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while circumcised. Now, that's a little bit confusing because this word circumcised shows up so much that it blows our brain. Okay? What's he saying? He is saying that Abraham was saved not under the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham was saved under the Noahic covenant. Now, just think about the history. God calls Abraham out of Ur. He goes to Haran. He believes God. He comes into the promised land. He believes God. God appears to him in Genesis 15 and says, Don't be afraid. I'm your reward. And it says in Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. God has not yet made a covenant with him. So what covenant is he under? He's under the Noahic Gentile covenant. 
Then God makes a covenant with him in Genesis 15. And in Genesis 17, God adds the sign of circumcision as a sign of this new special covenant. But Abraham wasn't saved by that. He was saved first. He was saved under the Noahic covenant, trusting in what God said to Noah. I will never curse the earth again. Trust me. Trust the rainbow. God says when the rainbow appears in the sky, I will see it. I'm looking at the rainbow. It reminds me not to judge the earth anymore. Trust me. This animal sacrifice that Noah offered shows what I'm going to do. Trust me. That's what Abraham did. He was a saved Gentile, Noahic, God-fearing believer for 30 years before he was ever circumcised and came into the Abrahamic covenant. So, now do you see the point? This is where we've been going. I've said this before, but now here's the proof. And the entire argument is just unquestionable. So, if Abraham is the father of the faithful, he's the father of any faithful Noahic Gentile believer out there somewhere. And he's also the father of circumcised believers, provided that they really believe. Notice what he says. Abraham is not the father of the circumcision in general, but verse 12, the father of the circumcision to those who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had when he was uncircumcised. Now notice that. In order for a Jew to be saved, what kind of faith did he have to have? Abraham faith, right? Let me ask this question again and quit getting blank stares. I'm tired of these blank stares. Okay? <laughs> For a Jew to be saved, he could be circumcised, but Paul says that doesn't help. Abraham is the father of the faithful to the circumcised only if they follow in the steps of the faith our father had, Abraham had, before he was circumcised. For a Jew to be saved, what kind of faith does he have to have? What covenant is he saved under? The Noahic covenant. All the Jews are saved under the Noahic covenant. To be saved, you've got to be saved the same way Gentiles are saved. The Abrahamic covenant doesn't save anybody. The Mosaic covenant doesn't save anybody. The Davidic covenant doesn't save anybody. The remnant covenant doesn't save anybody. And the restoration covenant doesn't save anybody. Those are special covenants with Israel for service. Each one of them includes the information of the Noahic covenant. But when you strip it all away... You've got to have the faith of Abraham, and Abraham was a Noahic believer. You've got to have pre-circumcision faith to be saved. Now, this is a radical slap in the face to the Jews. What Paul is saying is, Noahic Gentile faith is more fundamental and determinative than the special covenant with Israel, which was not at all what the Jews were saying. That is the reverse of what the Jews were saying. Now you see the issue. I hope you do. Now, there are some other interesting things here before we quit. Verse 13 to 17a. I have to say 17a because, once again, the versifications are off. They should have let me do these verses. For the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through righteousness of faith. Faith righteousness. Because it was given before circumcision and in a context of his faith not in the context of his circumcision for if those who are of the law are heirs 
Faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Let's consider that. The promise to Abraham and his seed was that he would be the heir of the world. And specifically, as he'll say in a minute, a father of many nations. Now, if only the Jews inherit that promise, the Jews are just one nation. And no matter how many people join up with Israel, they're just joining up with that one nation. So how can Abraham be the father of many nations if he can only be the father of one nation? That's a contradiction. In other words, he's, he's going to the text of the Bible. Paul is a Bible believer, like we are. And he argues right out of the details of the text. Abraham is going to be a father of many nations. The Jews are just one nation. So obviously, that means that Abraham's promise and the promise that his seed would inherit the world can't mean just Jews. It has to mean Jews and Gentiles. Then he says... Verse 15, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. Now, wait a minute. The law brings about wrath. Now, that's not the only thing the law does, but that is one thing the law does. The law reveals sin to Israel. As far as Israel is concerned, they want to know what sin is, the law tells them. As far as the Gentiles are concerned, what reveals sin to them? What in the Gentile reveals sin and wrath? Paul has already told us. Conscience. Chapter 2, verse 15. Their conscience is accusing them. Their conscience is bringing wrath to them. So the law brings wrath to Israel. Conscience brings wrath to the Gentiles. But where there is no law, neither is there a violation. Now he's going to return to that, and we're going to get to that, okay, tomorrow. So I'm going to postpone commenting on that question. Verse 16, for this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead. We've got to stop there. That's the next section. The seed who inherits the world has to be both Jew and Gentile. Because Abraham is the father of many nations, Jew and other nations. Now, what's the example in the Old Testament of a nation that is explicitly said to have Abraham as its father that had no genetic relationship with Abraham at all? Don't know? Well, tomorrow morning you will come back with the answer. No, no. Genesis 45, verse 8, Joseph says, it was not you, brothers, who sent me here, but God, and God has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his household, ruler over the land of Egypt. That is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Abraham becomes a father of many nations, first the Hebrews, and now the father of the Egyptian nation, because these Egyptians are converted. If you study the conditions given to Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. You'll be a father of many nations and all that. All of them are fulfilled by the Egyptians here in the last part of Genesis to show that God's word is sure. And even these Egyptians have a generation in which they are converted and do the things that the covenant said. So not only the Egyptians, of course, but based on that, we know that Jonah's Ninevites Hiram of Tyre and his nation, probably Darius and Cyrus and the Persians at that time, 
just to name a few nations that had Abraham as their father, even in the Old Covenant. And they were uncircumcised. So there's no way out of this, guys. You're going to have to face the fact, says Paul, that salvation has always been through faith. It's always been under the Noahic Covenant first and foremost. And Abraham is the father of many nations. Now, we could go further with that and say, who is the seed of Abraham ultimately? Jesus. And look at Jesus' genealogy and what do you find? Jews and Gentiles. Of course, it goes back to Adam and Noah. But even after Israel is set up, it includes Rahab and Ruth and others. Finally, we'll finish this chapter. He says in verses 17b and following, God gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, Abraham believed, in order that he might be the father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your seed be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being assured that what he had promised he was also able to perform. Therefore, also, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. No matter what Abraham did, no matter what good deeds he did, he was saved by faith and faith alone. Because underneath it all, he was simply counting on God. And that's what was reckoned to him as righteousness. Not what he did, but his faith. Verse 23, now not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, him who was delivered up for our transgressions and was raised for our justification. Okay, what's the point? He says, what is this faith? Faith is trust in the creator and resurrector, the God who calls into being that which does not exist, the creator, the God who brings life out of the dead. Now, look. And you all already know this because you understand election. If you're dead, you can't do anything to get grace. If you don't exist, you can't do anything to bring yourself into existence. Kind of a mind breaker, isn't it? If you don't exist, what do you do to persuade God to make you in the first place? Oh, man, I don't know. Heavy. Well, that's his point. What can you do? This is who God is. God creates out of nothing. God brings dead things to life again. That's the kind of God we're dealing with. Obviously, you can't do anything to persuade him. Abraham's faith was primarily in God the Resurrector, not God the Lawgiver. Now, he obeyed God, but his faith was in the God who brings things out of the dead. Then he obeyed God. Israel also has many pictures of resurrection which are supposed to be the bottom of their faith. The laws of cleansing. You become unclean, which means ceremonially dead. You touch a dead body. You touch a dead dog. You have an issue from the flesh. You have dead skin of leprosy on you. You give birth to a dead baby that needs to be raised to life again. You fool around with dead things and death gets on you and what happens? You have to be cleansed by washing and that's resurrection. Now, there's all these chapters in there. Or the sacrificial system. You take this little old animal here and you cut its throat and get all the blood out of it. Then you chop it into four pieces, but then you put it into God. The fire on the altar is God's presence. It goes into Him and it ascends up into heaven. That's resurrection. 
And they were supposed to know that. And then there were national resurrections. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel says, I saw this valley of dry bones. And God said, can these bones live? And I said, I don't know. You know. And so God said, preach to the Spirit. And the Spirit came in, and all skin came on these bones, and they came to life again. Remember that? And he says, this is a picture of the restoration of Israel after the exile. It's not a picture of the final resurrection from the grave. It's a picture of national resurrection. So what Paul can say, if he wants to expand on it, as I just did, is, hey, God is a God who brings out of nothing. God is a God of resurrection. That's what we trust. Our trust is in the resurrecting God. Obedience to the law comes after that. Law comes after resurrection as a rule for the saints. And specifically in Abraham's case, God comes to him and says, you're going to have a son. And he says, I'm 100 years old. Sarah's 99. Sarah has been through the change of life. How can she have a son? And God said, with God, all things are possible. It also says here that Abraham contemplated his own body. Now good is dead since he was about 100 years old. That is sometimes read to mean that he was no longer capable of performing husbandly duties. That's not likely. People in that day lived to be 180 years old like Abraham, and he had sons afterwards. And there's nothing in Genesis to indicate that. It's probably he was good as dead because at this age, it's not going to happen. Sarah's already through the change of life. But he trusted God. God opened Sarah's womb, and that is life from the dead. That's a miracle of resurrection. And consider, there are more of those. Rebecca's womb is opened up. Rachel's womb is opened up. Hannah's womb was opened up. The mother of Samson's womb was opened up. And the mother of John the Baptist's womb was opened up. All of those are resurrections. And all of them point to the virgin birth, which is creation out of nothing, in part. So we trust in resurrection faith. And he says all of this points toward Jesus Christ, who was delivered up because of our transgressions, and was raised up for our vindication. The world condemned Jesus... But when God raised him up, that was his vindication. And since we're in union with Christ, his resurrection is our resurrection, and his vindication is our vindication. But now by saying that, Paul introduces some new ideas that we'll have to get to as we move further. Any questions? Take away this. Paul is dealing with Jew and Gentile in Romans. He's dealing with the law because the Jews have perverted the law and made it into a nationalistic badge instead of seeing it as a mark of humble service. As we'll see tomorrow, the law was given to drive them even further into sin so that they would be an object lesson to the nations, not something that they could be proud of. But in talking about Jew and Gentile, he is defeating the idea that they have special privileges and that they can look down their nose at others. It still applies to any Christians who have the same tendency. It's very applicable. We've made some applications this morning and other times, and we will as we go on. His whole point is, Abraham was saved under the Noahic covenant. Everything else was added later on as special service. When you get right down to it, anybody in Israel that was ever saved in David's day, or in Samuel's day, or in Zechariah's day, they were all saved by the same faith as Abraham. Faith in cleansing, resurrecting power of God, and not faith that God had made some special covenant with them and that no matter what, they were secure. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm